0: Well, good morning once again. What a joy it is to be here. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through the end of the chapter, which is the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> I think we're going to get there. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 16, beginning of verse 15. Please follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15 says this, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and uh, Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore, acknowledge such men. The Church of Asia. Churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prissa, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus Amen. Let's just turn to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, as we come to the close of this book, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be able to apply what we see in your truth. We believe that your word is inspired and that this is your holy word to us. So teach us for this morning, we pray, that we might learn more about uh, who you are and how we should live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to take just a moment. since our our time, you know, the introductions, we have a little bit extra time. So, just uh, I think it'd be good if you just look to the person next to you and just go ahead and greet them with a holy kiss this morning. <laughs> Wait a minute, where's my wife sitting? <laughs> uh, okay, we're <laughs> we're going to be uh, talking about that this morning, but I thought we would open up just by. Asking this question, what have you learned about the church in Corinth? We've been in here in this study for a couple of years now. Uh, What what have you learned about this church? Great. Yes. They lacked unity. Okay. What else? Sorry. They were what? They were messed up. They had lots of problems. Yeah. Yes? By they were saints by calling. So they're believers who had a lot of problems in the church. Yeah. There was a lot of confusion around like tongues and gifts. A lot of confusion around spiritual gifts, a lot of pride, a lot of one-upmanship going on in the church even. Yeah. They didn't handle communion. Well. They didn't handle communion. Getting drunk at the communion table was not a good thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was, yes, go ahead. They were loved by Paul. He wrote them a lot of they were loved by Paul. He wrote them a lot of letters. Yeah, we know of four uh, that are referred to, two that we have um, that are scripture. What, what, was, um, what was Paul's main emphasis for them in this letter? If there was one takeaway that they could gain. Uh, what would that be? If they read this letter and they say, I need to grow in this area, what would that one area be? Yeah. Love. Love. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 13 is that famous love chapter. But even here at the ending, I want you to notice the bookends of our section. Look at verse 14 um, of 1 Corinthians 16. He says, let all that you do be done in love. Then he gives his his kind of final words, and um, the very last verse, verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And so the title of this message really is Marks of Love in a Local Church, and we're going to see really three unique ways you can see genuine love demonstrated in a church body or in a fellowship group even. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 through 24, we're looking at three unique ways that love Is demonstrated in the church. And the first one is in submission to one another. In submission to one another. Take a look at verses 15 and 16 again. Verse 15 says Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were first fruits of Achaia, the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry to the saints that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Now, we have this idea that Christians should submit to other Christians. And this is not the only place where we find this principle. Um, Ephesians 5 would be one of those. and Ephesians 5 and 6, actually. In fact, turn back with me to Ephesians 5. Let's just look at that. It's, it's a common place for us to go. Um, so... Uh, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. If you look at Ephesians 5, um, back in verse 18, well, let's go back further than that. Um, Ephesians 5, verse 15, therefore be careful about how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So Paul is telling the church in Ephesus to be wise in the way they walk, to walk in wisdom. And part of that is being filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so this idea of being filled with the Spirit is doing what the Spirit of God would have you do. Not doing what you might naturally want to do as a sinner, but everything doing what the Spirit of God would have you to do. And what does that look like? Well, there are certain words that describe it. Um, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the way you speak to others is evidence that you're doing what the Spirit would have you to do. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, the kind of joy, and you have something to sing about, uh, and that kind of joyful attitude, understanding what Christ has done for you, and and having that cause joy and motivation in your heart, um, outwardly and in your heart. And then uh, twenty is always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the Father. so gratitude is an evidence of doing what the Spirit would have you to do, and that means that no matter what situation you 're in, you should be able to find something to be thankful for because God is a good God and he 's in control and he 's sovereign and you 're understanding that and so um, and then you get to verse twenty one and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, and that word be subject is actually a participle, which means it, it actually describes what is going on with being filled with the Spirit, just like these other words of being thankful and singing and making melody in your heart. And so um, submitting to one another, and the Bible teaches mutual submission, mutual submission. But I think sometimes people hear that and they get confused. What does mutual submission look like? Because in our day and age, when we think about mutual submission, if you were to ask anybody on the street, what is mutual submission, they would probably say something, well, well, you submit to me here and I'll submit to you there and we'll take turns submitting to one another. And so we'll have to keep on submitting to one another. In fact, Elizabeth Elliott one time was in a debate with another lady on uh, um, what mutual submission was. And that's exactly what the other lady said. She said, that uh, submission, mutual submission, means the husband submits to the wife sometimes, and other times the wife submits to the husband sometimes. And Elizabeth Elliot, in that debate, pointed out that in Ephesians five verses twenty-one and following, twenty-two, uh, actually um, verses twenty-two and twenty-three, it says, "Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of wife, as Christ is the head of the church." he himself being the savior of the body, verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives to their husband in everything. Those are two parallel statements. And she pointed out in this debate, it was really quite um, a a great moment in the debate because she said that um, uh, when you have, uh, because they're parallel statements, um, the wives are submit to the husband as Christ. The church submits to Christ. And if you think that mutual submission is you take turns, then you have to believe that Christ has to submit to the church sometimes. And so that can't be what it is teaching. And what we find is we find several examples of submission within a Christian community. There is the example between wives and husbands. Husbands submit to the Lord and live sacrificially as Christ did. So they lay aside their own desires for what is best for their wife. Take a look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands have a leadership responsibility in the home whereby they are responsible to lead and be the spiritual leaders. Um, but yet they are still have to submit they have to submit to Christ and they have to submit their own desires and sacrifice them not submit to their own desires but they need to sacrifice their own desires in a Christ like way doing what's best for their wife but we also have children and parents in in chapter 6 children obey your parents in the lord for this is right honor your father and mother so children are to obey or submit to their parents um, in in a, in a different way that wives submit to their husbands so it 's just another example of what submission could look like, but also fathers and parents being included there fathers and mothers uh, are not to they' they 're to again not provoke their children, so they 're to submit to a holy living that is not antagonizing or or jeering their children or trying to get them to or 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 being too um, um, in, in a way, just being too harsh with their children. Uh, and then you have slaves, be obedient to your masters, verse 5. Um, and uh, then you have masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening. And so there are there is relationships of submission, but some mutual submission doesn't mean I submit to you, you submit to me. We come back to our passage in. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we have to ask ourselves, well, what does the submission look like there? In 16 verse uh, 15, it's, it's kind of a weird um, verse because he has this parenthetical long thought, but what he, the, the object of what he says, I urge you, what he's urging is actually in verse 16, I urge you that you be in subjection to such men. What kind of men? Who, was, who were the Corinthians to submit themselves to? Who was he urging them to submit themselves to? What kind of men? That's founded back in verse 15. We have a couple of characteristics of these men. We have um, this, first of all, that they were to be sensitive to God's direction. It says, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. So um, firstfruits... Um, we don't know a whole lot about what this household would have accompanied, uh, would have included, but there, there were um, at least two adults in a household. Um, there would have been, likely, children. In those days, uh, servants were identified as part of the household. And some commentators suggest that Fortunatus and Achaicus were probably servants, uh, perhaps in that household. And we'll talk some about that a little bit later when we get to verse 17. But regardless... These were the first fruits. Achaia, uh, Achaia is, the, is the southern region of Greece. It's, it's down there. And Greece has two big land mass, masses connected by a small landmass, And so the southern part, the two main cities there are Athens and Corinth. And above it would be what was called Macedonia. And that's where you have Thessalonica, Berea. Um, you have uh, Philippi up there in that northern region. And Paul had come down, had spent a year and a half in Corinth prior to this letter, and Paul had met Stephanus. Uh, Stephanus was, uh, first fruits, remember, was a principle laid out in Deuteronomy uh, 26 about where the first part of the harvest was considered the first fruits. In those days, you didn't have machinery, you had large fields, so it would take weeks, sometimes a month or more to plant a field. And so um, the first part that was planted was the first part that was actually harvested. And those were the first fruits. And the first fruits were a symbol and a sign of what was to come. If the first fruits were good and healthy, it was going to be a good year for all the crops. And by faith, you were giving of your first fruits, knowing that there would be more to come. In this case, he uses that language to describe the first converts in that southern region of Greece, which was this family or this household known of Stephanus, and there's almost this idea there where uh, he was well known in the area. It was the church knew him. He was a faithful man. Um, his household, those of his household, were faithful. It, it's 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 as though um, somebody uh, said, "Hey, I'm thinking about Christianity." And unbelievers would say, "Oh no, you, you're not talking about doing what Stephanus did, what the household of Stephanus, almost this 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 uh, reputation he had of abandoning the things of this world and turning towards following Christ and being devoted, and that was a real characteristic of Stephanus. He was sensitive to the direction of the Lord. Um, I think about how the world looks at submission." And the world looks at submission totally different than Christianity does. The world really despises submission as something that's weak. Uh, I was looking at different examples of submission and what people were saying about submission. Um, King George III, who, of course, near British history was the ruler over Britain during the time of the American Revolution. That's right. Um, But um, he was... uh, the, the, the American colonies wanted to break away, and he's quoted as saying, uh, once vigorous measures appear to be the only means left of bringing the Americans to to a due submission to the mother country, the colonies will submit. This is the same king who declared, uh, quote, a traitor is everyone who does not agree with me, end quote. That's a pretty good quote. But anyways, um, America would not submit, and Americans... Typically, I mean, part of who we are, we're loudmouth, gum-chewing, gum back-slapping Americans. We don't like to submit. We, you know, uh, just think about this, um, what Texans are to America, Americans are to the rest of the world. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of how, it's kind of our reputation. In fact, there was um, John F. Kennedy who said the cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. So even in modern days, relatively modern days, the 1960s, we have this this just really negative speech about the idea of submission. But here's the thing about Christianity that makes it different, and that is that if you are a believer... If you've repented of your sin and turned and you follow Christ and he is your Lord and your master and you've submitted your life to him, so much so to where you recognize him as as your master and you are his slave, you've given your life to him, everything is his. You recognize that that was something you couldn't help but do because you were already in slavery and you were enslaved to sin. So what you recognize that the world doesn't recognize is that you are either a slave to sin, which leads to death and damnation, or you are a slave to Christ, which leads to joy and happiness and eternal life with him. And so you have these two choices, and you're going to be a slave. There is, there is no such thing as a free man. You can be a freed man, freed from sin, only to turn and be a slave of Christ. But you're going to be a servant of someone. Or something. And the world doesn't understand that. They think of themselves as free. And therefore, submission for them is something that oftentimes is about, t- talked about or spoken of as something that's inherently evil. Submission is also the secret weapon of Christianity because people don't expect submission, um, they, they expect you to fight. They expect you to try and bribe them or talk them out of it, um, but they don't expect you to to submit. Uh, it just it just blows them away. Um, you know, you think about um, uh, uh, in. Um, I have a friend who was pulled over, and uh, he um, he was uh, asked uh, by the policeman. You know. Um, uh, to, to told that what he was doing wrong. And he just said, You know, I, uh, this was here, this is, I've tried, I tried this in Africa, but it was much easier because the tickets were only about $20. But here he did it, here he was speeding, and he got pulled over, and the policeman said, Did you realize you were doing this? You were speeding at this, he goes, Not only do I realize that, but I've done, I've broken the law many times and never been caught for it. And I deserve to be punished to the fullest extent of the law. So, you know, do whatever you must do, you know. And he says that after the policeman got up off the ground, you know, because uh, <laughs> the policeman just doesn't expect that. He doesn't expect somebody for you to just completely submit to him. And uh, I, I think that as we are in this world, you know, you look at First Peter 2, and we're not going to take the time to go there this morning, but just let me just mention this. First Peter 2 is broken up into different sections. There's submission to government. There's submission to um, masters and slaves and masters, submission in the workplace. There's following the example of Christ who submitted to death, death on the cross. And it actually says in First Peter chapter 2, um, it says, to this you have been called. And when we think about 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. To what have you been called? You've been called to suffer injustice. Part of being a slave of Christ is that you have, part of your calling is that you will suffer injustice in this world. And how you respond to that injustice is is definitive because it It marks whether you truly understand who your master is. Because if you're following the example of Christ, if anyone experienced injustice, who was it? Jesus Christ. And yet, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, if you're going to evangelize people and you're being treated unjustly, getting back at them is not the way to witness for Christ. But following Christ's example and entrusting everything to God is the way so that the people who treat you harshly look at you and say, I don't understand it. I treat him or her like garbage. And they genuinely are faithful to what they're supposed to do. And they treat me like, almost like I'm the one who should be pitied. So either they're the most foolish people on the planet or they have something I don't have. That's the way of the cross, that submission. And in chapter three of First Peter, it says, in the same way, you wives, in the same way as what? As Christ submitted to death on the cross. So you're winning your husbands over. In First Peter 3, verse seven, husbands, in the same way, love your wives, be live with them in an understanding way. So in the same way as what? So submission is this, is this, characteristic mark of Christians. We are submitters. We submit to government. We submit to uh, in the family. Uh, we submit, um, you know, children submit, wives submit, husbands submit to the Lord. This is, this is who we are. We'll submit to government. We submit to our employers, unless, of course, we're asked to do something that goes against what Scripture teaches uh, that could be something major, like your boss asking you, asking you to commit fraud. It could be something minor, like your, your son. I'll just say my son. I don't have any kids here. Uh, son saying, tell them I'm not here, right? That's lying. You don't have to do that. You know, if, you're, if the parent says to the child, oh, somebody's not going to tell them we're not home, you know? Dad, That's lying. You know, So you don't have to submit because uh, Acts chapter 4, um, shall we obey God or shall we obey men? We obey God when you're given that choice. But every other time that you're able to submit, that's who we are. And it should be characteristic in the church. It's unique. It's different. And we see that even in verses 15 and 16. Any questions before we go on? Because we want to finish, but we'll take time for questions because submission is not easy. Yes. What if the person you need to submit to has a different idea about uh, something that you are fully convinced in your mind with Scripture you need to obey a certain command, and the other person says, No, you don't need to obey that command, and they're the authority. Okay. In that but you feel like good yeah. So. The question is, um, what if somebody else has, a, has an idea about something, and, and they think you have the freedom to do it, but you, don't, you feel convicted about that, and so you don't want to do it because you feel like it'd be sin for you, okay? So Paul actually deals with that in First Corinthians when he talks about meat sacrifice to idols, and there was nothing wrong with it because an idol is nothing, so theologically, you had the freedom to do it. But because some people were so associated in their mind with the formal idolatrous life that they used to live in Corinth, for them, it was a conviction. And Paul tells them that they should abstain from it. And he said, I will even abstain from eating meat if it, if it offends you. So the, there's this whole idea of, of um, uh, not violating your conscience. Now, that being said, you might have uh, kind of an ill-informed conscience, and so ideally, if the person is a Christian and they say, well, you don't have to, you know, you can do this, um, you just need to say, listen, my conscience is, is being bothered by this, and either uh, I'm just a weak Christian and I'm not ready to do this, or I'm an ill-informed Christian and I need to grow in my understanding of Scripture more, but either way, right now I don't want to do this, and can you help me through this? That would be the 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 best approach, and we don't want to discuss specifics. But does that kind of give you a helpful way forward? Okay, good. All right, we're going to look now at a second way that we um, uh, in our in our. Oh, no, sorry, I didn't. I I wanted to talk one more thing about uh, verse verse fifteen and sixteen. Not only do we see that there is. Really, the person is sensitive to God's direction, but they're also very devoted to serving Christ. They're very devoted to serving Christ. Take a look again at verse 15. Uh, also says this about the household of Stephanus: They devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So this is a tremendous statement, and uh, there's a lot I could say about this, um, because there's a lot going on here, even with the word choice that he's using. For one, he uses the word uh, ministry there. It's the word diakonia. We get the word deacon from it, servant. It's this idea of they serve. We're not sure exactly. It could have been teaching and preaching. It could have been, uh, we know that they opened their home. Uh, we know that this couple had been, um, that that, that um, this family had opened their home. And and um, it, it could be that they were, Second um, Corinthians 8, 4, um, we the same word is used to describe those who supported needy Christians in Jerusalem. So it could be financial giving, it could be teaching, it could be hospitality. It, it could be many ways, but the ministry to the saints here it, it incurs, has this idea that they were really devoted to serving one another. And the word devotion there is actually interesting as well. It's the Greek word tasso. And it means to appoint or to assign. And what's interesting here is who assigned them? Who assigned them as ministers? Do you see it in the text? They have assigned themselves, they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. This was was just their heartbeat. We're, let's do everything we can to serve others in the church. These are the kind of people. And the, the word I mentioned the word tasso because there's a play on words here. Because the word for submit is hupetasso, and it's 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 a compound word, but it means something slightly different. It means to rank under. But in a way, Paul is saying, hyper tasso yourself under those who tasso themselves. Unto the Lord. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. There's, there's the, the idea here is the people who are so devoted to serving Christ devote yourself to being under them. But there's even something about this devotion here in that in the sense that you are, um, you are, we are to rank under. And th- this is the challenge for us: is that we're to find people in the church who are so devoted to serving Christ that we want to be like them because they're like Christ. And this is a desire. This is a unique characteristic of the church. I want to move on. I could say more about that, but let's move on. So the first unique way is that we see submission to one another, verses 15 and 16. A second unique way is they're standing with one another. So we see submission to one another, standing with one another verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says this, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Um, this word acknowledge is, is also an interesting word um, when, when we when we think about acknowledging them, he's not just saying, you know, put up a plaque, you know, in the back of Steadfast saying, ah, these people, they're on our plaque of honor, okay? It's, it's not just honoring them or acknowledging them. Although honor does have sort of a, a, a role in this, but the word is really appreciate them, but... It involves spending time with them or getting to know them. Again, it's a compound word, literally meaning to know upon. It means to know thoroughly, to learn about. And so, um, in fact, we have the same word in 1 Corinthians 14.37, where where Paul said, Acknowledge that the things which I wrote to you are the commandment of the Lord. Learn about these things, acknowledge them, see them, recognize them for what they are. And so when he mentions these three individuals, Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, um, they were to recognize them for what they were. They were to get to know them. They were, they were servants. I'm going to take you one other place because I think this word is fascinating. Acts 22, in, in Acts 22 verse 24... you want to turn there, keep your finger in in 1 Corinthians. Um, Oh, man. There we go. Acts 22, verse 24 says this. The commander ordered him to be brought to the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him in that way. This is a quite an interesting verse where there is this idea of uh, uh, scourging and whipping so that he might find out. And that word find out is the same as our word here, acknowledge. So there's this idea of learning. Uh, find out the reason for which they were shouting against him in that way. This is Paul who had... Um, obviously upset some people. And so um, they were getting ready to whip him and beat him to find out, uh, to get to know the reason. So the reason I mentioned that is because um, it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm a member of a church. It's another thing to say, I know the people in my church. A church like Grace, it's easy to come and slip away, only have looked at the back of people's heads. And, and you're really not getting to know them better. But there's this idea here of acknowledging them, not only honoring them, not only recognizing them, but there's an idea that you have to spend time with them. And this is unique in the church, that you really desire to spend time with one another. It's not like, let's get out of here before we have to talk to people. Which, which sometimes we're busy, and I understand that. But there should be a desire. If you love Christ, you will want to get to know others within the body of Christ. And spending time matters. I read a story about a guy who was trying to woo a, a, a girl, and so he wrote her some letters, and she didn't respond, so she kept on writing more letters to her, and he wrote her 700 letters. Eventually, she decided to get married to the mailman. <laughs> Who's she spending her time with, right? <laughs> Try another strategy, guys. No, the the <laughs> the the idea here is, I mean. It's ludicrous to think that you can get to know someone without spending time with them, without them talking to you, you talking to them. And this is just what it takes. And when we look at this passage, Paul says, I rejoiced over them because they supplied what was lacking on your part. In other words, they filled the gap because I spent a year and a half with you and I missed you. And so them coming to me helped fill the gap. It helped, literally in verse 17, it, they supplied what was lacking, what was missing, what was unfinished on your part. Notice, they refreshed my spirit and yours. It's a beautiful word, refresh. It's the same word in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come unto me, all you who labor in a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They were restful for me. And the idea here is that uh, Paul is saying, hey, these three who came and visited me, were such a a comfort to me and a refreshment. Um, They filled just exactly, exactly what I needed. I rested when they were here. It wasn't a burden. It was refreshment. Not only me, but they refreshed yours. Because these three individuals, they came to Ephesus, which is where Paul was, and they were going to return. They 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 probably brought Paul the letter that's mentioned in First Corinthians seven chapter one, chapter seven verse one, which says, "Now concerning things about which you wrote," because Paul's now writing back to them. So the, he's they're carrying back Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I think I think I can relate to that in some ways because of having lived in other countries. Um, I, we were. Uh, 19 years in Africa, eight of those years were in South Africa, and um, 11 in Malawi. And those years, some of those were really tough years. And I look back at those, and I think about how um, I wish I would have gotten closer with some of the people that I was working with. But in spite of that, an amazing thing is that when when we get together, if we go to a wedding, and there's a bunch of people from Malawi who all worked together, we just we don't want to leave. We just start talking. Do you remember this? Do you remember that? And it's like family. It's unbelievable. We just had somebody stay with us from South Africa for two weeks, and they came to visit because um, their daughter lives here, and their daughter just had a baby, so now they're grandparents. But we've known them for over twenty years, twenty-five years, or forty years. However many long it's, it has been, forty years. But uh, but but uh, they were they stayed with us so that they you know go spend the days with their grand. Son and with their 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 daughter and son-in-law, but I'm telling you, mornings and evenings, it was like we just wanted to spend time with him, and we just, I mean, you know. And they were, uh, he was a co-pastor. He was a Grace missionary, and he was a pastor in a church that was 45 minutes away from us. And so we would get together with with him every once in a while. But we were we were pretty close with them, Um, and uh, in fact, we we knew them before we got married. And um, so it's been 50 years. Wow! No, it's been <laughs> 23 years. This year, 23. Uh, so, um, but I, I just think I just think about the sweetness. And if you've ever been in a situation where all of a sudden somebody from a pla- past place that you've lived comes and visits, and it's not like wow, we have to have them, we have to host them, there should be this refreshment, this sweetness. That was unique among the body. And I say that because I think it's important for you at this time. It's easy for us to get caught up. Sometimes in Los Angeles, those of you who are not from Los Angeles, uh, your spheres don't overlap very much. And what I mean by that is we found that we moved here. We had sort of a, where our kids went to school, where our kids were involved in athletics, and where our church family was. And where we had lived in Africa... Those three circles overlapped a lot. There were a lot of the same people. But all of a sudden, we moved here to Los Angeles, and we're living 20 minutes away here, and our sports are over here, and the number of people. So you're trying to develop close relationships in all three spheres. And we just said, what are we doing? We, we had to try and, and, and get those spheres to overlap as much as possible. And I think I think it's easy to live here and not be intentional about getting close with other people and relationships and this is why we have fellowship groups this is why we have bible studies this is why i want to encourage you to really do life with people that you're fellowshipping with and so uh so that it's refreshing for you and for them and even in the future so we're looking at unique ways where a church demonstrates love for one another we've seen first of all in submission to one another secondly in the standing with one another Verses 17 and 18. Oh, I wanted to mention, <laughs> I'm kind of not on my notes today, but I wanted to mention uh, why uh, Fortunatus and Achaicus uh, might have been, um, the, the, some commentators think that they were slaves. There's no dogmatic answer for this. There's no proof of this, but it's possible. It was, those were common slave names and common names of people who were freedmen. You might look at Fortunatus and you might see the word fortune there. The name means lucky. The name, so if you're freed, you're like I'm no longer a slave. I'm Fortunatus. I'm lucky. Um, and uh, the same thing, uh, Achaicus was simply just someone from Achaia. So that was a common slave name in in antiquity. So some think that Stephanus had traveled as a businessman uh, and tra- traveled to Ephesus uh, with his servants. It's it's a thought. It it may be there, but the the reality is. If that's even true, Paul was refreshed by all three of them, and Paul was encouraging others to submit themselves to men like these. Um, So um, we have the submission to one another, the standing with one another. A third unique way that we find love demonstrated in the church is their salutations for one another, their greetings or their salutations. And we get here to verses 19 through 24, and we look at these Salutations. Look at me with verse at verse 19 in 1 Corinthians 16. It says, The churches in Asia greet you. Asia there is not Asia as we think of it, it's Asia Minor. It's where Paul was, it's Ephesus, it's West Southwest Turkey. And so that's where he was at the time. And so he's writing the letter and he's saying, Hey, the churches in this area, they all send their greetings. Um Aquila and Prissa greet you heartily. Elsewhere in Scripture, Prissa is referred to as Priscilla, but this was obviously a shortened name, a diminutive name for her, kind of a, 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 a just call me Prissa for short. So there's there's a sense of of uh, they knew her well um, and they greet you heartily in the Lord. All the brethren greet you. So there's there's this there's these this typical closing greetings where those who are around Paul Uh, All the brethren could have been his traveling companions. It could have been people in the church, although he's already mentioned the churches. So they're just all the brothers with me. Hey, we greet you. Different cultures say goodbye in different ways. Have you noticed that? Again, living overseas, uh, Africans, um, when you meet them, sometimes they shake your hand. If they know you, if they really like you, they don't let go of your hand. And so the uh, 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 first time it uh, happened to me, I met a guy, shook his hand, and, and we went for a walk, and he's just holding onto my hand. And we're just holding hands. And it, to me, it seemed... But that was his culture. And uh, for me to pull away would have been a little bit offensive. And it, for me, it wasn't too awkward until he interlocked fingers. Then it got a little bit... Um... When somebody leaves in Africa... You don't just... You can't stay on the couch. You go, hey, thanks for coming over. You, you don't even walk them to the door. Culturally, you're supposed to walk them to the first river. I mean, you walk them to, to wherever they're going, to their taxi stand or whatever. In, in South Africa, even in South African culture, uh, you can't just leave them at the door. You can't just just like, hey, thanks for coming over. You've got to walk them to the car. And then you talk to them outside the car. And then they get in the car, and then they roll down the window. And you talk to them through the window. And then they pull away, and if you're not standing in your driveway waving to them in the rearview mirror, they're gonna like, man, they must have been in a real hurry. Saying goodbye it takes a long time to say goodbye. It's a shock. It was a shock. It's culturally coming back here, you know, to go to someone's house and have them say, "Oh, that was a good meal. Hey, we're gonna go upstairs and wind down. Just let yourself out." Like, what? You know? and that's my own family. Um, (laughs) So when when you think about um, uh, the different cultural ways, what I want to point out here is it doesn't matter what the culture does. What matters is, do they know you love them? Love covers over a multitude of sins. People ask me sometimes when they go overseas, well, culturally, what should I do? Or people say, I want to be a missionary and and uh, I want to learn the culture first. You know what's more important than learning the culture? Learning to love them. There are some things you should know about every culture, and it's good to learn them. But if you focus too much on that, you're not going to get it perfect anyways. And if you're focused on that and you're not focused on loving the, the people, loving them is what matters. And so we have this picture of a congregation that's greeting to them and um, is greeting them and... And in the second part of verse 20, gets a little more intimate. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So what's a holy kiss? I always wondered that. How, do, how Should I practice that? It's an imperative, you know? Well, in John Ellingston's article, Kissing in the Bible, one that I'm sure that you have uh, read many times, um, <laughs> he describes a customary kiss in Scripture that includes, quote, a mutual embrace... And touching of the cheeks, probably on the left and the right, possibly touching of the lips to the other person's cheek. So, in Old Testament times, there was also a practice where you kiss someone on the forehead. And so, kissing on the cheeks or kissing on the forehead or just touching cheeks, those were customary New Testament greetings for people who were close. Those such kisses were in no way romantic. Twice, in the Old Testament, you read about romantic kissing. Proverbs 7 is one place. Song of Solomon chapters 1 and 4 would be another place. Um, but it's clear that the kind of kissing that Paul writes about, and elsewhere in Scripture where it talks about the holy kiss, is the type of kissing that was not associated with romance, but was associated with a deep, genuine affection for one another, which was especially evident with people who were, who were in the church. Um, Later in church history, actually, you read about the holy kiss, and it fell. It actually became ritualistic, to the point where uh, even in Catholicism, they're kissing artifacts and they're calling it the holy kiss, and it just it it became bizarre. But what's clear here is it's not just a ritual; it's somehow showing affection towards one another. And so, I'm not suggesting that in order to fulfill what. Paul instructed to the Corinthians that you actually have to now, you know, say, oh, pas français, you know, bonjour, you know, and kind of, you know, do something that's foreign to the way that, you know, like people are like, oh, well, what's going on with these Christians, you know, they just, all of a sudden they turned French, uh, but um, it's not, not to be with French kissing, which is really Solomonic kissing, <laughs> Solomon chapter four, and by the way, I looked up... Um, he says, I kiss you, and it talks, anyway, so uh, um, you can read it on your own, but the French didn't invi- invent it, just, just, just so you know, but it's, it's a biblical thing, but anyway, um, wow, how do we get to this? By the way, I wish Jade were here, right, because he, he's adorable, awkward announcements where he tells people, you know, uh, uh, Genesis eleven twenty six right everybody uh, know it it's where he's, uh, he's, I think it's Isaac I greeted her with a kiss I met her I, I, I kissed her I wept right he tries to pass that off as though that's how you meet a woman and tells all the single guys this right is that have you heard him say this am I the only one okay so anyways um it wasn't a romantic kiss. It was a customary greeting. And there was nothing romantic about it, although they ended up getting married, but anyways. Um, so when, when we think about this, how best can we express this? How, how do we apply this? I would say somehow, in a non-romantic way, the, mo- the more you can express your affection to someone the better for guys. That might be just a really warm handshake, and you know, maybe a you know, uh, just some sort of um, you know, maybe you're praying for one another, and you actually have your hand on their shoulder. It's it's this idea that we're showing family closeness um, in a way that expresses deep affection for one another. So, um, I think show that sense of spiritual kinship. For some, it may be, you know, kissing on the cheek, you know, women with women or men with men, it, it, depending on the culture that you're in. That, that's fine. That's great. But um, it is not to be ritualistic, and it's not to be misconstrued as making a pass at someone either. It's something that, is something that is showing affection in a warm way to one another. And we come to his closing remarks. Paul says in verse 21... Uh, this greeting is in my own hand don 't want to spend too much time on this, but um, uh, this was common for Paul Paul. if you remember back from First Corinthians chapter one, verse one, he was with sosthenes our brother it 's very likely that Sosthenes uh, helped write this letter. Paul typically had an Emanuensis or somebody who would help him write the letter, but he typically signed the letter himself in fact. In Galatians 6.11, he says, "'See with what large letters I have written to you in my own hand.'" And uh, because of that, some people think he had poor eyesight um, because he had used large letters, and um, there's some other things there, too. Uh, In Acts 23, he called the high priest a whitewashed wall. Later, apologized for that pretty much because he uh, was unaware that the man was the high priest. So that's Paul's eyesight, too, bad eyesight. But anyways... um, he wanted them to know that this was an authentic letter. He had an authentic signature. It was recognizable. And so he cared for them enough to show, I'm going to show that, hey, this is from me. And then he throws in this curse, which is kind of a weird way to say goodbye, right? <laughs> These are the final salutations. He says, hey, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Um, but if you think about um, Paul's heart for the gospel, and in chapter 1, he opened by saying that... If any, uh, by saying that um, the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. And he's just, you know, he's been so much about the good news that, hey, it's bad news. And remember that their worship had been so um, uh, warped that at one stage, some of them were evidently cursing Jesus as an act of worship, thinking that that was spirit-led. And he corrected that in the letter. But he's just saying, hey, if anybody... If you, and, and this goes along with love as well, Right. You love Christ. You love his body. You will love one another. If you don't love Christ, you don't have good news. You have bad news. And one of the things you should be looking at, even as the closing of this letter, is do I really love Christ? Have I really repented of my sins? Have I turned and trusted in him? Do I love him? And then he goes on to say, um, Maranatha, which is translated as Come, our Lord, Maranatha, come. And it's this idea he thinks about, somehow he's writing about uh, anyone does not love the Lord, but in his mind, he loves the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come now, Maranatha. And then his typical greetings, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. Amen. He uh, emphasizes that, my love, because he cared for them. So how can love be seen uniquely among believers? Submission to one another, standing with one another in that kinship, and then the salutations for one another, verses 19 through 24. We have a few minutes left. Any questions? We start a little bit early so we can end early, but if you have questions... Happy to answer them if we can. All right, well, it's appropriate then. We ended eight minutes early. We're gonna, we, we started a little bit early. We got up here in time, which is good, but we're gonna, I'm going to close in prayer. And then I want you to not leave the room until at least eight minutes are up and to greet someone with a holy kiss, however you want to <laughs> apply that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this study. We thank you for this time in your word. We're thankful, Lord, for your goodness, and we're thankful for the challenge that this is. Even these closing remarks, and we see all that's there. Thankful for the time we have had these last couple of years to work through this book, and we're thankful for our church and for our pastor and for the teaching that we receive here and for your goodness and, and for the love that you have for us, sending your only son to die on our behalf that sinners who are rebels against you, who don't deserve grace, yet we see that the grace of the Lord Jesus can be with us. And may that be a daily reminder that each day is a gift from grace, and we're thankful for it. We're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for Paul's love for the church. We're thankful for the love we have for one another, and help that to grow and increase May it truly be love for the body of Christ because we love Christ, motivated by what Christ has done for us. May we sharpen one another, encourage one another, challenge one another, and be examples to this world. May they tr- may we truly fulfill what was said in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. So help us to practice that. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.